Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations accordingly. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. And of course, when you go to that website, you'll also have the opportunity to contribute to our work financially. That is always appreciated. We'll be talking today about a major investigative report we produced. We produced it with your help, with the financial support of the people who care about animals and enable us to do this critical work. Before we get to the main topic, however, which is the sale and transport of U.S. horses into Canada and Mexico for slaughter, I want to revisit some other news we made recently relative to cockfighting in the U.S. Uh, it seems to me, Wayne, that the issue is reaching even greater critical mass because I've read a couple of stories just in the last week about potential spillovers from birds, bird flu, to humans. It's gone to sea mammals. It's gone to mink. Uh, if it goes to human that ain't good news, if I understand uh, the message correctly. Is that right, Wayne? Well, it is, Joseph. And after the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak, I think all of us have a keener understanding of zoonotic disease and the threats to other animals and to people. Avian influenza is one of the biggies. There's just no question. You know, Think of the, the Spanish flu of 1918. Uh, there have been a whole series of major spillovers to people that started in chickens. And we've identified that cockfighting with our experts, we have two veterinary scientists who both have advanced degrees in infectious disease matters. Uh, they have identified that this, this network of cockfighting operations can rapidly spread avian influenza around our states, around the country, around the world, and lengthen this outbreak in terms of duration, extend its reach in terms of geography, and make the virus more virulent. You know, this starts off as low pathogenic avian influenza. And as it goes through other animals, it becomes high pathogenic avian influenza. Now we're seeing intermediate, uh, intermediary species like mink potentially more easily and more readily passing it to human beings. So again, how we manage and handle animals has enormous questions for the routing and virulence of zoonotic diseases. It's fascinating too that mink is involved because we did talk about mink being uh, the primary uh, mammalian link between uh, the coronavirus and humans. And here we're hearing about this animal again, uh, yet the United States seems um, unreluctant or reluctant rather to, to put an end to, to mink farms. No, no, mink, mink you know, we, we justify the end of mink farming based on the sheer cruelty of keeping these wild animals on factory farms. And when you add in the, the fact that mink were the only species to be documented to, to get the virus from people, SARS-CoV-2, and then spill it back to us in mutated form, and all of the threats that that poses for a totally marginal industry, now you think of them being a potentially very dangerous intermediary uh, for avian influenza that could jump to people with a 60 to 70% mortality rate people compared to, you know, a very small percentage, but still we know how deadly it was with SARS-CoV-2. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, our risk assessment when it comes to 
the mistreatment of animals on mink farms, cockfighting farms, pig factories is all upside down. It's all yeah. upside down. Thanks, Wayne. And, and I meant to introduce you as the president of Animal Wellness Action. Also on the show is Scott Beckstead, our director of campaigns. They're both here to talk about the main focus of the show, uh, and that is horse slaughter. Australia has its kangaroos, China, its beloved pandas. The U.S. has horses. We love them. We revere them. And while it's now illegal to slaughter horses in the U.S. for human consumption, it remains legal to sell them, buy them, and transport them across the borders into Canada and Mexico for slaughter. Slaughter isn't the only byproduct of cruelty in this enterprise, though. From the time an owner decides to sell the animal until the end finally comes for him or her, the journey is rife with neglect, starvation, injuries, lack of basic care, shelter. Last week, we launched a major investigative report into that journey. 34 pages long, featuring more than 70 supporting photographs, the report offers a daunting look inside the business of foreign horse slaughter. You know, uh, Wayne and Scott, you know, you think you see things and you become, I guess, somewhat anesthetized to them, but I spent a great deal of time preparing this report for publication, and some of the images in it, they're, they're just heartbreaking. Um, Wayne, start us off by telling us how this report came to be and then get us into what you learned as you saw it come to fruition. Well, you know, Boone Pickens, the late Boone Pickens, who was a wildcatter and billionaire businessman, testified some years ago, maybe 12, 13 years ago, uh, with me before Congress on the issue of the slaughter of horses for human consumption. And he called it America's dirty little secret. And I think he had it just right. You know, we have this love affair with horses in our society, yet we've had horse slaughter plants operating in this country for decades. That happened, you know, year after year until 2007, when we finally shuttered them. The last three plants were, were closed uh, in 2007, one in Illinois and two in Texas. But we still are slaughtering American horses. We're just trafficking them to Canada and Mexico. So Scott and I have worked with Animals Angels, which is a wonderful nonprofit group that specializes in farm animal-oriented investigations with a real concentration on horses. So we partnered with them on a national investigation that took investigators to 10 states and also to Canada and Mexico to look at the real underside, the secret enterprise of horse slaughter. And I think it's the most important uh, report that's been done on this issue. And we at Animal Wellness Action and the Center for Humane Economy, with all of our political acumen, want now to translate this report into federal action and finally end the slaughter of American horses throughout North America. As I've mentioned on the show many times, you know, living in Louisville, Kentucky, the Derby is always very, very near and dear, uh, you know, to the public here. Um, one of the most appalling things. I learned, and the thing I shared that appalls people most when I talk to them is that one of the Derby winners ended up on on this journey. Right? Not only is it common for horses who race at the lower level races, but it even touches the pinnacle of the racing world. If you can have a Derby winner end up on this journey, uh, that says something about the way these animals are used and then uh, discarded. Scott, you are. Uh, more expert on uh, this issue probably than than anyone else maybe in the United States when it comes to, to horses and, and the way they can uh, meet unfortunate ends. 
Uh, tell us about your role in this report and, and what surprised you most in reading it. You know, it's it's uh, for someone who was uh, raised with and around horses. It's it's always uh, really shocking and hard to hard to see um, the abuse uh, and the mistreatment that uh, is heaped upon these animals. You know, in my family, the hierarchy was um, the, uh, the horses were number one, uh, cattle were number two. Dogs and kids were about, you know, tied for third place on at our farm, but it would have never occurred to us. I mean, we we uh, spent our summers on horseback riding through the mountains of central Idaho. Uh, we did all of our big game hunting when I was a kid on horseback uh, in Montana, Idaho uh, and Wyoming. Um, and <clears throat> these animals were absolutely treasured uh, members of the family. And so um, you know, even with that rural agricultural upbringing, it would have never occurred to anyone in my family uh, to send uh, one of our horses to a slaughter plant. We did what the vast majority of, uh, of Americans do when their horses reach the end of the trail, and that is we call the vet and we have the animal, you know, humanely put down with peace and dignity right there surrounded by uh, you know, the people and the other animals that it knows and loves. Um, and yet there is this small uh, subset of the horse-owning population that continues to look at these slaughter auctions as uh, as an outlet for horses that they no longer want to care for. Uh, so um, I have been, as, as you said, I have studied the horse slaughter uh, issue for, for decades. I've worked closely uh, even when I was in private practice as an attorney on the Oregon coast, I, I uh, communicated frequently with Wayne about this topic. It's always been something I've been very interested in and, and, and have always worked very hard to try and stop. So I was thrilled that we were doing the investigation. Um, I knew that it was going to reveal uh, heartbreaking uh, things, uh, things that are still happening. Uh, on the other hand, uh, as Wayne said, it is absolutely critical that we do this kind of work and that we get the findings in front of members of Congress so that we can finally get a, a ban passed. Here are some excerpts from our press conference last Thursday, February 9th. Speaking is Sonia Meadows. She is the president of Animals Angels. We had a little bit of difficulty with her audio, so please bear with us through that. But she had fascinating things to say about the production of the report and its findings. The decline was very obvious to us during the entire investigation. And we documented, and that's nothing new because we've seen it over and over since well over a decade, that cruelty goes hand in hand with horse slaughter every step along the way. And I can tell you, it's really like somebody flips a switch. The minute this horse is unloaded, at loading dog of an auction and is labeled a kill horse. The minute that determination is made, everything that horse experiences from then on will be dramatically different and completely inhumane. We found that, for example, that the behavior of auction workers changes immediately towards these animals. The handling becomes more violent, they're scared of them. They're using moving sticks to move these animals. They move them in large groups and they move them in pens that can hold between 50 and 100 horses, 
which as you can imagine is of course um, a recipe for disaster because you have horses of all sizes and genders in these pens. And I've seen numerous times horses getting kicked in the head and dropping down dead. We also looked at uh, transport and I will get to a specific incident here in a minute. And then we documented feedlots and um, conditions at the Canadian slaughter plants. Now, at the Canadian slaughter plants, we obtained records from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, which delivered horrifying, horrifying details of what official inspectors observed at the plants. I mean, for example, um, a horse upon arrival was down inside the trailer and employees decided to tie a rope around that animal's neck and drag it the 53 foot trailer all the way till it fell on the ground. Then they tied the legs to the, a forklift, moved that animal by forklift into a pen and um, left it there to suffer all night struggling until the morning crew of the plants arrived and finally put it out of its misery. I'll put a link to the report in the show notes. And for those of you who are listening to this on audio, you won't see them, but the video version on YouTube, uh, I'll include some of the graphics. One of the graphics, Wayne, I want to touch on uh, that came through in the press conference showed that the number of horses being exported for slaughter has gone down drastically. What do you say to people who interpret that diminishing number as a sign that it's really not such a big deal? Yeah. Well, let me just say it's great news that the number of horses has declined from 350,000 in 1990 to 150,000 in 2010 to 20,000 in 2022. This is a 90% reduction from the 19 90 numbers and about a 75% reduction from 2010. This is great. This is an industry on the decline. And one of the major reasons for it is that the Europeans began to recognize about the substances that are administered to horses who are coming off of racetracks, who are coming out of a work environment, who are coming out of a, of a pleasure a barn or a pleasure ring whatever the circumstance of the horses, and we have so many ways in which we interact with horses, many of those horses get medicated and they're medicated with substances that are forbidden for human consumption. That combined with global concern about animal welfare and specific campaigning in Europe and other parts of the world to talk about the cruelty that's occurring uh, have really conspired in the best way to reduce those numbers. But still, you're talking about 20,000 horses, each of whom goes through a, a lengthy journey and a trauma to get to the slaughter plants. And really what we discovered is that once ownership transfers from someone who had their horse in their, in their yard or their barn or, you know, in some setting, obviously, if, you know, it was an industry, it might have been a, a little different but the standards of care just fall off the cliff. And every additional input of decent food, clean water, veterinary care, human attention and socialization, uh, obviously, you know, any sort of training or exercise under supervision from someone who knows what they're doing, none of that occurs. 
you're just in a survival mode and they put these horses through so much and they expect the vast majority of them to survive and most of them do, but they suffer greatly. And then of course, at the end of the process, these, these flight and fright animals, fright and flight animals, you know, see how they're slaughtered in front of them and their eyes get as wide as saucers and they're terrified and terrorized by it. And all for what? For a high-end consumer in China or Russia? I mean, this is not a staple. The numbers tell the story there as well. You know, we're killing, you know, 10 billion chickens and 35 million cows and 125 million pigs. Those are big numbers and there are real moral questions about that. Those numbers of horses are small relative to that, but each one of them suffers. But it tells you that this is no, not necessary. It's not a staple. It is a tiny little sidelight to the human you know, dietary experience for a tiny number of people in the world. And it does not warrant what we put these horses through. It, it reminds me of uh, the mink conversation we just had, where we are subsidizing funding cruelty in the U.S. for, for the benefit of these oligarchs, these elites uh, in, in countries that really aren't, you know, friends of the United States to begin with. Not that that would really matter, but, you know, how can we, how can we justify not consuming those products here, but at the same time, raise, raise them for elites in, in well, communist it, and, and hostile countries? Yes, you're, you're right. And also countries that have communist traditions that don't have civil society, that don't have nonprofit animal welfare groups, like here in the United States, where animal groups have been active for 150 years trying to create norms. Of, of treatment of animals and even voluntary industry standards, and in some cases, legal standards, they got none of that. And with the horse slaughter industry, as we found out, as Scott knows so well, there are no, no voluntary standards at all. There's not even an industry. This is just a loose collection of people who are profiteers. They're, you know, the pig industry and the chicken industry, you go to their websites, they talk about animal care, they have voluntary standards totally deficient, but at least it's something. These people have nothing. Yeah. Wayne, what is the history of trying to get prohibitive legislation passed, and, and what are you hoping to get done in Congress this time? Well, Scott and I have worked on this for, for many years in, in our varying capacities, and when we, we joined Animal Wellness Action in the Center for Human Economy in 2018, 2019, uh, we definitely put this near the top of our list, but historically, horse slaughter, you know, did not get attention from the humane movement in the legislative uh, form, you know, for decades. And we had dozens of horse slaughter plants in the United States in the first half of the of the 20th century, and then those numbers began to decline. But there was still a substantial number of horse slaughter plants in the second half of the 20th century. And finally, through a combination of judicial actions and state and federal legislative actions, we shut down the last three slaughter plants, uh, two in Texas, as I mentioned, one in Illinois in 2007. And we had already been shipping some horses to Canada and Mexico while we were operating slaughter plants in the United States as a nation. But then those numbers increased and a larger proportion of the horses slaughtered, well, 100% of them, 
started going to Canada and Mexico. And again, 2010, it was 150,000 horses going to Canada and Mexico, now down to 20,000. So it's small enough now where we can just make, I think, very lucid, compelling arguments for any lawmaker who's willing to listen. There is no rationale for horse slaughter. It's not a jobs argument. There's not an economic engine here. There's no value in, in dealing with unwanted horses. This is just, you know, gang-related activities against horses. No, no better than gangs, you know, shooting up people and claiming that they are reducing the population and allowing more people to get more food. I mean, it's ludicrous, their arguments. They've got no arguments. Well, so, so great. You and I and Scott certainly would say no-brainer. What do critics of this prohibition say? What could possibly be argued against this kind of ban? Uh, you know, I, I can I can take that. I I I have picked out what I think are the three uh, most prevalent and pernicious mistruths, or or let's just call them what they are: outright lies told by proponents of horse slaughter. And we hear these arguments from. Uh, from some of the veterinary groups, uh, from uh, some of the breed groups, especially the American Quarter Horse Association, um, you know, 70% or more uh, horses uh, that are exported from the United States uh, for slaughter uh, are considered by the USDA to be quarter horses or quarter horse type uh, animals. Uh, so we hear, you know, we hear these these arguments. The the, the number one uh, uh, lie that that is told is that uh, equating slaughter in a foreign uh, country with humane euthanasia, and and for, you know, to hear this coming from a veterinary group saying that uh, that people, uh, you know, should have the option of having their horse humanely euthanized in a foreign slaughter plant. It's just absolutely ludicrous. We would never, uh, you know, we would never consider it humane euthanasia for someone who has an elderly or sick dog uh, to ship it to Canada or Mexico so that it can be butchered and sold into an Asian country where they eat dogs. That's just, it's crazy. And, and when we think of euthanasia, we think of the vet comes to the farm and there's this very quiet, dignified process for the animal to just you know, basically be put to sleep. That is a far cry from what happens in a Mexican slaughter plant, let me tell you. Uh, the, the second uh, uh, lie that is told is that there are no other options uh, except slaughter, the, so that slaughter is a necessary option. And, you know, for ever since um, I came uh, into the humane uh, movement uh, professionally back in 2008, that was during the economic downturn when you know there were uh, people were struggling to take care of their horses and and you know there was some real economic need there. Programs sprang up across the country to help horse owners in need, both in caring for their animals as well as helping them find new homes. At the same time, um, you know, hundreds of qualified horse rescue organizations and sanctuaries uh, were formed. Um, and, you know, for example, here in Oregon, we founded the Oregon Hay Bank, which is still going strong since 2009, providing direct economic assistance to horse owners uh, in every single county in Oregon. People have received help, whether it's in the form of hay, uh, help getting their colt or stallion gelded, 
vet bills, all these kinds of things. So there are programs available and there are rescues available um, you know, to help as well. And then I think the third uh, really pernicious lie that's told is that the rescue and sanctuary community is over capacity and you know, can't absorb uh, the number of horses that we are exporting to slaughter. You know, 15 years ago, when that number was 150,000, that argument might have made more sense. But now here we are at roughly 20,000 horses a year being exported. And you've got the entire rescue community 100% in support of a ban on horse slaughter. We would expect that if they truly were uh, unable to absorb those animals, they would make the argument that, you know, we can't afford uh, a slaughter ban. But in fact, we know that the rescue community is is solidly in support of a slaughter ban. And they have said, I mean, the Homes for Horses Coalition, which is an association made up of the top horse rescue organizations in the country, is solidly behind a slaughter ban. So those, I think, are, are three, uh, you know, three things that uh, proponents of slaughter say that are just patently false. And I think it's important that we get the word out there uh, and let make sure that people know the truth. Yeah, you know, Joseph, this whole argument from the pro-slaughter people and, you know, some organizations that somehow got hitched to that horrible wagon, you know, that, that somehow they're helping unwanted horses. I mean, these people don't care about horses. You see it in their behavior, in our investigation. They see homelessness of horses as an economic opportunity, not as a moral responsibility. And that is the key distinction between the humane movement and these profiteers. They could give a rat's ass about these animals. And you see it in the way they treat them. The Scott is absolutely right. We have a network of humane organizations, you know, local humane organizations, brick and mortar shelters. Many of them now have horse capacity. You have groups that are multi-species farm animal groups that take horses. Then you have hundreds and hundreds of horse rescues. And let me also note to you that, you know, you mentioned Ferdinand or you implied that, that a horse, you know, a Kentucky Derby winner um, died. That was Ferdinand. He went to Japan in the 1980s and was, was slaughtered. Actually, he was exported alive and, and slaughtered, which is a different sort of pathway uh, because now we're, you know, we're slaughtering them in Canada and Mexico, not, not, not way far, far away. The horse racing industry used to be a political problem for us. Now the horse racing industry uh, is now on our side. They want to see horse slaughter banned. And while some horses are coming off of these minor league tracks, these terrible tracks in West Virginia and Louisiana and some other some other settings, the higher level tracks that have more responsibility in terms of care, again, not to say they're perfect, but they are now with us on this issue. So the dynamics are changing. And we just saw a paper published in the, the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical, Medical Association with prominent vets saying the veterinary community has got to oppose horse slaughter now because we have no traceability for these horses. We don't know what's in their substances, in their, in their tissue um, in terms of substances, and that we cannot reliably support the idea of these animals going into the food chain, no matter who's eating them, whether they're Americans, when, unfortunately Americans don't eat them, whether they're Chinese or Japanese or Italians or, or Belgians, 
this is not acceptable any longer. So you're seeing the dynamics change. So you're seeing that the industry, industry shrinking, which shows that they never really performed any valuable service. Uh, two, that the, that the severity of the cruelty for the animals in the chain is just as bad as it ever was. And now you're seeing a much broader coalition that is attacking this problem. So I think this is our opportunity with the Farm Bill being taken up in the 118th Congress, 2023 and 2024, uh, we've got to achieve this. This this industry, you can't even call it an industry. It's a it's a tiny little business, loosely connected with profiteers at various stages. What can I just, our... just want to add? Go ahead, Scott. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I just I just want to add here. A recent poll shows that 83% of Americans strongly oppose the slaughter of horses for human consumption. This is a strong cultural taboo in this country. And, you know, um, Wayne characterized the horse slaughter industry uh, as America's dirty little secret. There is a reason why uh, this industry doesn't like the light shown on itself. There is a reason why this industry just prefers to operate in the shadows. And that is because what they are doing is so fundamentally un-American. And, you know, I mean, we just saw uh, the Wyoming legislature pass this nonsense joint resolution calling for the roundup and slaughter of, of wild horses in Wyoming, which is probably just a, a, a ploy in, its, in the state's larger campaign to try and gain ownership of federal lands in, in, in that state. But still, I mean, the idea that that these that these Wyoming legislators, you know, uh, you know, wearing their cowboy hats and cowboy boots could vote to send horses, Amer you know, wild horses, round them up and slaughter them. You know, I'd like to just tell those folks that, you know, real cowboys don't eat their horses. Real cowboys care for their horses. And I think if you, you know, if you talk to John Wayne or or any you know sort of cultural icon that we think is of representing the Western frontier values, and you said should we be rounding up wild horses so that they can be slaughtered and then their meat sent to China or France or Japan or whatever, they would be aghast. They and they'd probably be pretty angry about it. So uh, you know part of this too is really I think we have to embrace who we are as a people. And as a people, we do not treat certain animals like food animals. We don't do it to our dogs. We don't do it to our cats, and we don't do it to our horses. Um, you know, we we you you get the sense that you know there are some who would probably gladly exploit the market uh, in uh, homeless dogs and cats if it were uh, if it were possible. Uh, thankfully, we have a federal law that that bans that. Uh, now we just need to extend that to include horses as well. Thank you, Scott. That's a good segue to a question I'll put next to Wayne, and that is, what can our listeners do to help? You know, like a like a lot of issues that are small abuses uh, executed by a by a tiny number of people. You know, your own personal dietary habits or your consumer preferences and purchases are not going to make an impact. We don't eat horses here in the United States. This is an export industry. This issue requires a political solution, and the solution is simple. I mean, we've banned horse slaughter in the United States. You, you will not find any horse slaughter plants from Washington 
to Florida, Washington State to, to Florida or anywhere in between. We now need to extend that ban to the live export of horses to Canada and Mexico. If it's wrong to slaughter horses in the United States, and that was the precept for that legislation passing in 2007, then it's wrong to export those same horses to Canada and Mexico. It's arguably worse because it's probably a longer distance and journey that they travel in some truck where stallions and mares are jammed together and that they you know, get no, no food and no water, no rest, no breaks. Uh, the whole thing is, is, uh, is a political issue that needs to be addressed by the United States Congress. If people download the report and look at the photographs of, uh, you know, the, the, these horses who, who die and are left frozen to the ground or trampled on and the transport vehicles whose hooves reach grotesque dimensions, whose emaciation allows the showing through of virtually every bone in their excess or their skeleton, um, I think I think they will be moved uh, for sure. Uh, Scott and Wayne, I'll go to each of you in turn for final thoughts. Scott, well, um, you know it it's it's uh, long overdue uh, a, a federal ban. Uh, we the 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 American people took action through Congress to protect dogs and cats from the same kind of of greedy predatory profiteers uh, that are currently targeting our horses. And, um, you know, we need to do the right thing and we need to do the American thing by the American horse and finally get a law passed. Uh, I'm thrilled that we are, uh, I, you know, launching this new investigation and the report, and I hope a lot of people see it. Most importantly, I hope uh, that our listeners out there, if you, if you uh, want to join with us, please contact your members of Congress uh, and tell them that you support a federal ban on uh, horse slaughter uh, for human consumption. Uh, that's probably, honestly, the most impactful thing I think that uh, our listeners can do. Wayne? I want to thank all of the organizations who are devoted to this, all the people who've sacrificed and who have been laboring on this issue, the hundreds and thousands of organizations who care about this issue. Now is your moment. Now is your moment to help get this done with us. You know, this, this whole issue is now different than it was 10 years ago. It's different in terms of the numbers. It's different in terms of just being naked, in terms of the cruelty. Uh, it, is, it is unjustifiable for any logical reason now than had been advanced to, to, to defend it 10 years ago. So it's great that the horse racing industry is on board. That's an exciting development supporting a national live export ban on horses. Uh, it looks like the veterinary community, which had been an opponent of this, is now going to be an ally. So I, I think that I think this is a very promising situation. And my instinct when something is promising is to put my foot on the gas. And I ask everyone involved in this country who cares about horses, who cares about animals who cares about the norms of our culture to weigh in with lawmakers. Let's flood lawmakers with communications on this issue. Let's give them a very clear picture of where the American public stands on this issue. And if that happens, then a policy will result. Great. Thank you, Wayne. Uh, people can find a link to the report in the show notes. If you go to animalwellnessaction.org, 
uh, we have a, a banner that pops up. You can go to that website and instantly be connected uh, to the report uh, as well. So you can see it uh, there. And I think you will be motivated once you, once you take a look at it. And now we go to Marty Irby, our executive director and chief lobbyist for an update of what's happening on the Hill. Marty, spill some tea for us. What's going on up there? Well, we have had a busy, busy six weeks or so since the Congress began at the 1st of January. Wayne and I have done over 200 meetings on Capitol Hill, mostly in person, uh, with the exception of just 10 or 12 or so. And we have really socialized some ideas, some new topics that we're working on. We've got new legislation in the works. So we have gotten our first bill introduced, the Veterans for Mustangs Act, uh, that we started working on last year with Cameron Ring from Veterans for Mustangs that would enable the Bureau of Land Management to implement a training program to train veterans to go out and implement the use of PZP fertility control to wild horse populations both on the range and in holding facilities. We had gotten $11 million worth of funding in the year in spending package for this purpose. And now we have to have Congress authorize the Bureau of Land Management to do this, to set up this program. So we got the bill introduced, HR 726 by Congresswoman Lisa McLean from Michigan, along with Troy Carter uh, from Louisiana. We now have about 19 bipartisan co-sponsors, I think 10 Republicans and nine Democrats. And we're really looking forward to getting that moving in the House Natural Resources Committee this spring. I think it stands a really good chance of passing and getting signed into law and it'll probably have the best shot of anything we've got in this Congress at getting done. And then we've got a number of bills that we are working on for the farm bill. So every five years, there is a federal farm bill. This is a farm bill year as the current farm bill expires later this fall. They could extend that into next year, and it will probably likely take into 2024 before we get a new farm bill done. But we have a number of initiatives we're working on, hopefully, to get the PAST Act compromise to end soaring that we've talked about for so many years done in the farm bill. We're working with the Tennessee walking horse industry again on that front. We also are working to try to get horse slaughter uh, or a ban on horse slaughter and the transport of horses in America for that purpose in the Farm Bill as well. And we've got a couple of new uh, other initiatives, one to deal with the milk mandate in the kids school lunch program that's tied into dairy, of course. So right now, children of color, 75% of African Americans, 60% of Hispanics, 95% of Native Americans, and 90% of Pacific Asian Islanders are lactose intolerant. Uh, I myself am lactose intolerant, but it's only 15% of Caucasians that are lactose intolerant. And every child in the federally funded school lunch program is forced to drink cow's milk. If they do not have a carton of cow's milk on their tray, the school is not reimbursed for everything on the tray. And most of this uh, milk is being thrown away in the trash, uh, or not most of it, but a lot of it. USDA did their own study, 29.8% of all the children that get that milk throw it away in the trash. So it's a billion dollars a year spent on this program just for milk. So we're literally throwing $298 million a year away in the trash unopened. So we've got a new bill that Congresswoman Nancy Mace, along with Troy Carter, are introducing uh, in the coming months on that front to allow a soy option. That's the uh, equivalent from the 2019 dietary guidelines that has the same amount of protein as cow's milk. So we're really excited about this new issue and have framed it up 
a couple of different ways. It's a multi-dimensional issue, but we are really glad to be working with Dotsie Bausch and Switch for Good on this. She was here in D.C. with me all last week working and lobbying. So that's a big one. And then um, we also have been working on a new animal fighting bill. I know we talked about some in a previous episode uh, in the last Congress that was introduced right in the fall. We've got uh, Don Bacon from Nebraska who's going to reintroduce that this spring to upgrade the uh, federal animal fighting laws that we've done in the past several farm bills. And then last but not least, uh, the most complicated issue I work on, and that's the USDA's Commodity Checkoff Programs and the OFF Act, Opportunities for Fairness and Farming Act. I know Nancy Mace and Dina Titus, uh, Congresswoman from Nevada, are planning to reintroduce that here at the end of February. That deals with the USDA's Commodity Checkoff Programs and transparency or lack thereof that we've seen and talked about in some episodes of our podcast before. And we're going to be making a big farm bill play on that front along with Senators Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, and Kirsten Gillibrand on the Senate side. So I know that's a lot, but we are really working hard at the beginning of this Congress to get some new bills introduced. And I think we're going to have a great couple of years here and get a lot done for the animals. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really do appreciate your being on the show. We were recording this early on a Sunday morning. So thanks for getting up up uh, there on the West Coast, Scott. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning into the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.